Hi, guys. I did not understand that thing about blabbering on. I don't know what that was about, but I will say this. The apple does not fall far from the tree. <laughs> hey, we are starting so many new things today. Um, we are starting a new sermon series this morning, which I am super, super excited about because we're going back to the Old Testament um, and we're going to be dealing with lots and lots and lots of stories. And I'm a story guy, and I love stories. I love stories wherever they come from. I'm a huge book reader, uh, and, you know, in the last, you know, in my adulthood, shall we say, which is the last, I don't know, five, six years or so, um, I, I have uh, needed to be constantly reading nonfiction for my own education and my spiritual growth and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I had to actually force myself and, and determine that no matter how many other books I'm reading, I'm always going to be reading one book just for enjoyment, just some kind of a novel, some sort of a classic, some sort of a uh, fiction book, something like that. So I love the stories. I love movies. I'll talk to you all day about movies and what movies I've seen and all of that kind of stuff. I even am willing to put up with country songs if they have a good story in them. Um, the guy lost his truck and his dog and all of that. And just if he had a Budweiser, everything would be fine. I like those songs. Um, cartoons, if there's, if there's a coyote chasing, a, a, what do they call those guys? Roadrunner. Um, if real life stories, I absolutely love stories. Um, and my favorite kind of stories are hero stories. And it's not actually just unique to me. It turns out that across the board, everybody's favorite kind of story is hero stories. Uh, and when you stop and think about that, you realize there's a reason for that. God designed us in such a way that we would be longing for the one hero of our lives, right? He designed us so that the story of the gospel would actually fulfill us and actually make sense. That we who are lost in our sin would, would be uh, rescued by a savior, that there would be a hero who would pay a great price lay down his life in order to buy us back. Um, and so I love hero stories. There's a dangerous situation. Uh, there seems to be no hope inside. And then some hero rides in on a white horse and saves the day, usually at great risk and great cost to himself or herself. I love that. And the Old Testament is filled with hero stories. And some of the best ones are found in the books of First and Second Samuel. So you're going to need to find First and Second Samuel in your Bibles. It's in the Old Testament. It's fairly early in the Old Testament. If you get to First Kings or First Chronicles, you've gone too far. First and Second Samuel um, are where we're going to be camping for the next couple of months. So put a marker in your Bible there in First Samuel. You'll be able to find it easily. Um, and unfortunately, we are not going to be able to go verse by verse and cover all of First and Second Samuel. We're going to do kind of a flyover, and we're going to kind of go story by story and look at some of the stories that are in there, particularly dealing with the life of David. Because uh, as you know, First um, uh, and Second Samuel uh, deal with kings of Israel, and and there really are two original kings. 
uh, one good king and one bad king. And we, we read about them in First and Second Samuel, right? And of course, uh, there's Saul, the first king of Israel, and then there is David, the second king of Israel. So we have one good king to look at and one bad king to look at. And of course, the bad king is David. If you, if you thought that when I, when I told you this is going to be a hero story from First and Second Samuel, that you're going to be hearing about David the hero, you will be sorely disappointed in this series. Because what we're going to discover is that David is not a hero. And we're going to go further and discover that, by the way, to be fair, neither is Saul. This is a hero story, to be sure. But the hero is not Saul, and the hero is not David. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be digging in over and over, trying to understand who the hero is and how that fits in to our lives. So um, let's, let's just set some, some um, background here. Uh, uh, Israel was created as a theocracy. That is to say that they were designed as a people to be ruled directly by God. God is the king of Israel. And yet, as they got sort of established as a nation, all of the nations around them had kings, and all of those kings served a purpose for those people. They gave direction, they gave leadership, they sort of set an example to follow. They were, they were someone to make hard decisions, they were someone to make sure you were taken care of, they were someone to look to as an example. Um, and, and the people of Israel looked at this and said, man, we would like to have a king. But God had designed it so that they would be led by judges and prophets. And that prophets would speak for God to the people, that God would speak to the prophets, the prophets would speak to the people, and God would rule in that way. But the people kept complaining. The people kept crying out. The people kept demanding, I want a human king, someone to be an example, someone to celebrate during times of victory, someone to blame when things are not going well. And, and God had told them again and again that he was their king. He had warned them. He said, human kings make mistakes. They take advantage of people. They, they lead from a place of greed and, and hunger for power. They're, they're selfish. And, and they end up hurting the people that they're called to serve. And God had warned them about this again and again and again. He said, I know you want a human king, but I have done you a favor. You now have a perfect king. But if you want a human king, he will destroy you. And they said, that's a really good point. We want a human king. <laughs> and, and have you ever heard the, the old saying, be careful what you ask for, you just might get it? I want to illustrate that principle by telling you a story about one of my kids. <clears throat> now, out of respect for my kids, I'm not going to tell you which one. We have two daughters and a son. I'll just tell you this was one of the sons. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, he was just a baby. He, he could have been more than, say, 9, 10, 11 months old, something like that. Um, and, and we went out as a family to a Mexican restaurant. We're having dinner there, and there was a very spicy pepper on my plate, 
and I am a civilized individual and know that it's ridiculous to eat food that is that spicy, and so I set it aside to the edge of the plate, which was right in his eyesight, and he kept pointing at that and asking for it. And I kept saying, no, it's too hot. And he kept asking for it, and I said, no, it's too hot. And he began to cry and demand to have it. And so, like any good father, I waited till his mother was not looking, and I, and I cut off a little piece of this hot pepper, and I gave it to him, and he popped it in his mouth. And at first, he was so happy because he got what he wanted, and then it kicked in, and that's when he started to cry. And, and uh, that's when I started to laugh. <laughs> Now, now I'm looking at you guys. So, some of you women are glaring at me the way my wife was glaring at me that day, and most of the dads are just like laughing. Um, and, and it was the funniest thing I've ever seen because here's this kid, and he's literally pulling at his tongue, trying to get his tongue out of his head. <laughs> it was the greatest sight I've ever seen. I laughed until I cried, and then my wife looked at me, and I cried. And, but I don't know why she was so upset. I mean, everything happens for a reason, right? And, and obviously, the reason for this was so that I would have this sermon illustration one day, be able to explain the fact that sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for, because you just might get it, right? So I don't know why my wife, she's still upset at me about this to this day, I think, but I was just doing the Lord's work. It's just... <laughs> so, anyway, what was I talking about? Um, oh, yeah, the people of Israel. People of Israel wanted a king, and their heavenly father kept telling them no. But they wouldn't take no for an answer. And so God gave them a king by the name of Saul. Now, what were his qualifications? He was tall, dark, and handsome. Pretty much what gets somebody elected in most places. Um, so the people loved him. And once he was established as king, God began to speak to uh, Saul through the prophet Samuel and give him direct directions. Here's what I want you to do. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you haven't turned there already, get to 1 Samuel, find chapter 15 and join me in verse 1 and follow along as I begin to read, um, in 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek uh, for what he did to Israel. Now he, how he set himself up uh, against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now, first of all, uh, let me give you some background. When he's talking about Amalek and calling Amalek him, he's not speaking of a person, he's speaking of a nation, the Amalekites. And and the Amalekites had been this hoarding band of barbarians, so to speak, who kept attacking Israel at various points after they came out of Egypt. 
And so uh, they, were, they were known in that area as this band of uh, warriors who would just come in and, and rape and pillage and burn villages and take over and kill people. And this had happened to the Israelites numerous times. And so God decided he was going to put an end to this. And, and now we look and we go, wait a second. Men, women, children, donkeys, camels, why, why does God do this kind of thing? And then other times, God is incredibly patient and very merciful and gentle. And, and we look at this and we go, what is he doing here? Why does he swiftly judge in a case like this? And other times, he's so patient. Um, I don't know the answer to why God does what he does. But I do know this. God is perfect. God is just God is righteous, and therefore what he does is always right. I do know that God was protecting a lot of people from the terror of the Amalekite hordes, that they were causing harm to all of these people, and God was intervening. Anyway, as we look at the story, we see that he says, I want you to go and utterly destroy everything connected with the Amalekites because I do not want the Amalekites to ever exist on the earth anymore. I am answering the prayers of people, protecting them from these attackers. And pick it up in verse four. He says, uh, then Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down uh, from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness, all the sons of Israel, when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, <clears throat> the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And then verse 11 tells us that in light of this, God was grieved that he had made Saul king. And, and I don't have enough time to really unpack this, but, but we see these places in Scripture where it tells us that God experiences grief as a result of the sins of his people. And it's easy for us to just sort of sit back and see God as this sort of um, ethereal being that, that doesn't experience any of this kind of thing like grief. And yet, over and over and over again, it says God is grieved by the sins of his people. And so God is grieved, and that's when God sends Samuel to confront Saul. And he confronts him, and he says to him, why did you not do what God commanded you to do? Why did you not do it? And, and that's when Saul begins finger-pointing excuse making, blame shifting, it wasn't me, it was them, uh, I didn't understand, I didn't know, I meant to do right, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in verse 19, after listening to him yammer on, Samuel interrupts, verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, 
but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why didn't you obey? And then verse 20 and 21. Then, uh, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me <clears throat> and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So, so listen, uh, first of all, it wasn't my fault. The people did this. And secondly, um, they did it for religious reasons. They just took this stuff so they could make a sacrifice to you. Why would you be upset about that? I did obey. It's not my fault. Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So God says, I delight in obedience and you have disobeyed me. And for that reason, I'm rejecting you. You're not fit to be king because you will not obey the voice of God. Verse 24, finally, there's a crack in the armor. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Okay, I, I guess you have a point, Samuel. Um, I didn't do it exactly right because of the people. The people was the people. Um, and, and I may have sinned a little bit, but um, please make sure I don't get punished. That's his statement. Verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. <clears throat> so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God does not accept your excuses, he says. Sin is sin. Finally, Saul can see that he's serious. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned. But please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. You're right. You're right. No more excuses. I messed up. Um, <clears throat> but please honor me before the people. Everything this guy does is motivated by selfishness. You could see why God would remove him as a leader of the people. Just imagine living in a place where the political leaders were selfish. <clears throat> so, 
So Samuel grabs a sword and he kills the king, which is what God said should be done to begin with. And look what happens next, verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, which is where he lives. But Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is a really important passage. This is a really important moment in Israel's history. This is the point in which Israel first separates their political life from their religious life. This is the separation of church and state in Israel, if you will. A nation that was designed as a theocracy to be ruled by God. And now you have to do the research, read the stories, and do the math, and you realize that it's about 25 years that Saul continues to reign as king before he dies on the battlefield. And, and he never heard from Samuel again. 25 years, he ruled Israel as a secular land. The voice of God not speaking to the king. And God says, I regret that I made Saul king and I've chosen a different king. That brings us to chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the, elder, what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? And he said, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. 
And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Those two verses next to each other at the end of that passage. The spirit of the Lord came upon David and stayed with him for the rest of his life. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, opening him up to the attack of the evil one. And, and uh, I don't have enough time to unpack all of this right now, but I just don't want to leave any confusion here. We see here in, in 1 Samuel the spirit of the Lord being taken away from Saul. That is not something any Christian has to worry about. The scripture says that when we submit our lives to Christ as Lord, the Holy Spirit actually comes not upon us, but within us. And that we become one with God relationally through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Holy Spirit does not leave us. Now, the scripture does talk about the fact that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. There's that word again. And, and it does tell us that we can quench the Holy Spirit, speaking of the Spirit as, as a flame, uh, and so that the Spirit's influence in our life becomes more and more dull and less and less prominent due to our sin and our unwillingness to submit to God. But if you're an actual follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is present in your life. You don't ever have to worry that there will be a day when God will look at you and say, enough is enough, I'm taking my spirit from you. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Uh, and, and in fact, later on, in Psalm 51, and I'm skipping ahead toward the end of David's story, but later on in Psalm 51, David writes this famous psalm when he's confessing his sin to God, and he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He asks him to create in him a new heart. See, in the Old Testament, they had to be concerned that the Spirit came and left, came and left, came and left. And what we see happening with Saul for the rest of this story is that there is an evil spirit that comes and goes in his life and torments him. And David becomes a big part of how he's ministered to during those times. Now, here's the thing. Most of us, if you ever went to Sunday school or even watched a Bible movie, you've heard this story. Most of us know that, you know, David uh, or Jesse had all of these sons and, and they, were, they were warriors, the older ones. They were trained men. They were big and strong and impressive. And God just passes by them until he gets to little David, who's out in the field scraping stuff off the bottom of his feet from hanging out with sheep. And God says, bring him in and chooses him. Why would God do that? Why would God pass by all these more qualified sons of Jesse and anoint the runt of the litter to be the king? And by the way, he does it right in front of his brothers. How'd that go for Joseph? Remember that story? <laughs> Similar situation here. His brothers become jealous, angry. Why would God do this? because it was never supposed to be about an earthly king. God wanted to show himself strong. 
He was not interested in finding an impressive person that was strong. He knows that our eyes automatically go to impressive people who are strong. He wanted our eyes to go to him. And so he's showing himself strong by choosing a weak and unqualified and unimpressive person to be the king. And as I said, it took about 25 years before David actually became the king, but he was anointed as king at this point. You see, God isn't interested in you or me being impressive to people. He wants to work through us to make himself impressive to people. And, and boy, that's a hard line to draw, isn't it? Like, I, I want people to uh, get to know me and I want them to feel loved. I want them to feel cared for. I want them to recognize goodness in me and all of that. Why? Is it so that everybody will be able to talk about what a wonderful person I am? Man, if you knew me behind the scenes for 10 seconds, you would never talk about what a wonderful person I am. What you would talk about is how great a God I serve who would forgive such an unworthy person. That's what God is constantly trying to do to make himself impressive to people because he knows that what we need more than anything else is to see God. What we need more than anything else is to be drawn to God. What we need more than anything else is to be impressed with God. And, and for that, he doesn't need the best and the brightest. He's looking for someone after his own heart. Much later in David's life, he would write these words. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. But that comes much later in our hero story. For now, just realize that for 25 years, the king and the prophet would not speak to each other. And Saul will die on the battlefield, prideful and far from God, right to the bitter end. And then David will actually take the throne. And there's a lot more to this story that takes place in those 25 years, and we're going to get to that. Um, But for now... Suffice it to say, God is not looking for a hero. He is the hero. And, and where we get into trouble is when we start to think someone other than God is the hero that we need in our lives. We get into trouble when we think that, that we have a better idea than God and that, and that our way should replace the commands and directions of our lives. Guys, we, we didn't take hardly any time to analyze the life of Saul. But, but we look, there, there's the, this, this story and another one where he just sort of disobeys one detail of what God tells him to do. And, and it seems like his heart's in the right place. We, we go, Saul, Saul goes down in history as the bad king. But for, for all these years, he mostly did the right thing. He has two marks against him. Twice that he didn't do everything exactly the way God told him to do it. That was not the problem. The problem was his unwillingness to own it. It was his unwillingness to fall before God and say, I need you. 
It was his unwillingness to fall before God and say, I am a sinner and this is my fault. My sin is my fault. The enemy wants so much to convince us that our sin is somebody else's fault. Well, I wouldn't have lied if he hadn't threatened me. Well, I wouldn't have stolen if I hadn't been held down by the man. I wouldn't have cheated if the, if the test hadn't been rigged. It, it, it's not my fault. This is our favorite answer whenever we begin to feel confronted by God. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. And popular psychology today comes around and says, you're right. If your parents didn't potty train you right, you're going to be an axe murderer. That's what happens. And we believe this stuff because we want to believe it. We don't want to hold responsibility for our own sin. Saul didn't hold responsibility for his sin. He refused to own his need for God. And because he wouldn't own his need for God, he was rejected by God. David's sins make Saul's sins look very small. That's why I said, if we want to say that David's a good king. I don't think you've read the story. If you say David was this wonderful guy, I don't think you understand what he did. But David was willing to own his own sin, humbly fall before God, and accept God's amazing grace to change his life forever. We get into trouble when we forget that our lives are really not about us, but we exist to bring glory to God. Saul made a lousy hero, and his story ends tragically. David makes a lousy hero, and we're going to witness that time and time again as we go through First and Second Samuel. And by the way, you and I make lousy heroes too. Oh, good. I got some amens there. God is not looking for someone impressive and outstanding. He is looking for someone who will kneel before him and put their trust in him alone and let God be the hero of their lives. That's what he's after. First and second Samuel is one hero story after another. And through it all, we will learn that God is the only hero there is. So let's get practical. Who do you tend to look to as a hero in your life? Who who are you hoping rides in on a white horse and saves the day? Is it a political leader? Is it is it you know um, some celebrity that you're obsessed with? Is it a new relationship? Oh, if I could just get her to notice me. Is it, is it a wealthy person who could come through and dig you out of the hole that you're in? Is it yourself that you're going to allow yourself to take the lead and the control in your life, make your own decisions, do things your own way? There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. He is ready to be the hero in your life. If you will simply bow at his feet and give him control. As we study the life of David, that truth is going to be apparent again and again and again. I hope you won't miss a single chapter of this hero's story. Let's pray together.
God, we come before you now as those who <laughs> make lousy heroes um, and, and, and as those who frankly are looking often to the wrong heroes. Thank you for the reminder that it's not about us, it's not about someone else, it's about you. And God, we just pray that you would soften our hearts for I look at Saul and I see way too much of myself there. Father, I need a softer heart. I, I need to, to care more about your reputation than mine. I need to seek your glory above my own. I need to let go of the reins in my own life and trust you with them. And so, God, I pray that as all of us consider this, this contrast between these two men, that we would recognize that one is not good and the other bad. They're both in need of a hero, and one chose the right hero. And so, God, thank you for coming to our rescue. I pray for each person here who might need to just release one part of their life into your hands, who might have been holding on to something, thinking they could do better than you can, who, who might be more interested in their own glory than yours. Father, wrench that control from our hands. Help us to rest in you, our one true hero. And we give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, so today is the first day of our two-service schedule.